to the Jews who lived in the former Soviet Union, they would often tell the story of an elderly Jew who was sitting in a park and passing by was a KGB agent who says to him, what are you reading, old Jew? Why, comrade, he says, I'm learning Hebrew. And the KGB agent says, what are you learning Hebrew for? You know it will take years for you to get permission, a visa to travel to Israel, and you will certainly die long before you get one. He says, no, I'm learning Hebrew because when I go to heaven, I want to be able to speak to Moses and Abraham. And the KGB agent says, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Maybe you're going to hell. And the old Jew says, not to worry, I speak Russian. <laughs> I thought about this joke when I was just in Israel. I was to leave Yerushalayim, Jerusalem for Tel Aviv, but with the planned protests in and around the major choke points around Tel Aviv's traffic hubs, I figured it might be a good idea to skip the cab and take the train. After all, Jerusalem and Tel Aviv are joined by now a high-speed electric train that promises a 30-minute trip, and I can report to you that the train is indeed fast. I can also report the train operates on Jewish time. It was 30-ish minutes. But when I was back in Toronto and I'm packing, I cleaned out my pockets and found the train ticket for my trip. And I was struck by the words that were stamped on it in Hebrew. Rakevet Yisrael, the national train of the state of Israel. But Theodore Herzl, who imagined a Jewish state to be so profoundly inevitable, to be such a surety, that he declared at the end of the first Zionist Congress in 1897, at Basel he said, I founded a Jewish state. And if I were to say this today, certainly I'll be met, he wrote, by universal laughter. But in five years, certainly no more than 50 years, everyone will see it. But for all of his pressures, Herzl assumed that Hebrew, which at that point had survived only in Jewish learning and in Jewish prayer, would never be resurrected as a spoken language. He would go on later to write, who amongst us has sufficient acquaintance with Hebrew to ask for a railway ticket in that language? He wrote in his landmark pamphlet, such a thing cannot be done. Herzl could see statehood, but not peoplehood. That would be left to a Lithuanian Jewish boy. Eliezer Perlman was a good student, so when he reached his bar mitzvah age, he headed to the city of Polotsk for a yeshiva high school education. And it was there that he began to wonder if Hebrew wasn't just a language that would speak to us, but it was something that we could also talk with. But this wasn't a question that came from nowhere. Our bar mitzvah boy Eliezer was living and listening to a world filled with questions that people hadn't dared to ask for hundreds of years, questions of antiquity and modernity, of choice and responsibility, of identity and destiny. It turns out that Eliezer was a touch too modern for Polotsk, and he moved to Glubokia, where he met a woman named Devora Jonas. She helped him learn French and German and Russian to his Yiddish, his Hebrew, his Aramaic, and his Lithuanian, she also became his wife, and then he changed his name from Eliezer Perlman 
to Eliezer ben Yehuda. And the rest is history. There is not a village, town, city in the state of Israel that, that, that does not have a Rehov ben Yehuda, a ben Yehuda street. But despite their differences, ben Yehuda saw what also Herzl saw. The Ottoman Empire was crumbling and with its hold on Palestine, and he would go on to write his most famous essay saying that what makes a people isn't just a land, it is a language. And that language, he wrote, had to be Hebrew. Ben Yehuda was telling Herzl that a train ticket in Hebrew wasn't any more impossible than a Jewish state in 50 years. In fact, Ben Yehuda was telling Herzl that a Jewish state could not exist without a Hebrew language to fill it. Of course, Ben Yehuda had a small problem, that it was a language that hadn't been spoken in over 2,000 years. At that point for Hebrew, there was no word for weather, there were no Hebrew jokes, there were no words for medicine or finance or driving, there was no electricity when people last spoke Hebrew. And so he picked up and he moved to Palestine. And there he made the dramatic decision that only Hebrew would be spoken in his home. It created problems with his wife, who often went weeks without speaking to him, and his son, and son didn't speak a word, not a word, until he was four years old. And according to his own autobiography, the sons, the first words that he spoke to his parents were, Lo lachem, please don't fight. And with that, the story begins. The first spoken Hebrew words in thousands of years. And we haven't been the same since. The connection of language to this holiday seems obvious enough. After all, Pesach is a celebration of our peoplehood because what would have been the point of liberation from Egypt unless we were to become something? And the ancient rabbis who knew more than a thing or two about preserving national identity asked the question, how the Israelites managed to survive hundreds of years of a brutal enslavement, living in a diaspora, under a totalitarian regime, disconnected from a homeland, and given no freedom of movement or religious expression. To that point, I've had delegations from the Toronto Chinese community visit me with the same question that is individuals from the Greek Orthodox community have, along with representatives from a number of large Muslim communities. The question they ask me is the same question that the Dalai Lama, the leader of the Tibetan Buddhist movement, asked the Jews decades ago, recorded in Kamenitz's famous book. The question is, how did we survive? And in many ways, the answer is found in Hebrew. One of the ways that Jews could stay Jewish is that we cherish this language, even when we didn't understand it. And believe me, that many Jews were in the same position as North American Jews, in that they don't understand, even though they knew it was the Jewish language. Still, they prayed in Hebrew. The Torah is written in Hebrew. Ben Yehuda's determination to make Hebrew come back from the grave was insanely optimistic, given that at, that at the time, 80% of the Jewish world spoke Yiddish. 
But of the six million victims of the Shoah, nearly all of them were native Yiddish speakers. And in one blow, it was all wiped out. But we had Hebrew. And Hebrew gave us the sense that we were tied to one another through the strands of a linguistic DNA. Now, I know this when I travel and I hear a myriad of languages throughout the world. But if I should hear someone speaking Hebrew, something inside me warms and melts. I know it happens to you too. I feel something like home. The ancient rabbis tell us that there were two things that enabled the Israelites to survive as Israelites. The first was that they kept their own language. We all know the damage of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, but we also need to understand what the right words at the right, right time can do. Language can save you because it saved our ancestors. And the second thing we are told was that they kept their names. They preserved the names their families carried with them and the biblical record, the Torah, is proof of that. The names it has recorded of the people who departed Egypt are both ancient and profoundly, deeply Semitic in Hebrew. The ancient rabbis learned that lesson well. Now at Yizkor it is an accepted custom to talk about memory, and rightly so, because this is a profound moment of memory for us all. But in the mix of all the things that we remember, I want to ask you to take a moment to recall the names of the people that we mourn. Because we often name our losses by who they were to us. Parents, spouses, my siblings, a child. But it is also true to name our losses by who they were to the world. And it is that name which made their footprints felt and seen. Their name was created at their birth, like yours, and spoken at their last moments in this world, as ours will be. Their name tells us who they came from. And if we are blessed, we know that that name will be given to those who follow us. And that Hebrew name formed in a language from the sand-blown march of our people from slavery to survival, we realize that they have passed, but they cannot be lost to us. I'm reminded of a conference where the canonical Israeli novelist Aaron Appelfeld gave the keynote address. He spoke about learning Hebrew. A native German speaker from Romania, Appelfeld survived the Holocaust as a child and came to Israel in 1946 learning Hebrew as a teenager and consciously choosing it to write all of his fiction. It was rare for him to discuss personal experiences, but on that evening, Appelfeld told us something quite intimate. When he arrived in Israel, he said, each day he worked on a kibbutz, and that at night he returned to a small room where he had a notebook and he had a pen. And there he began to write down the names of each of the murdered persons in his family, but not in German, but in the Hebrew that he had just begun to learn, setting these forgotten people's name into those ancient letters. And there he told us on that evening, 
He had them forever. They would not be forgotten. And neither shall ours. Chag Sameach.